0: Uh, I am going to read one of my absolute favorite stories, um, the story of Hannah uh, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. So listen and see what it says to you. There was a certain man of Ramathayim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuph, an Ephraimite, If you have to read those names out, just do it with confidence and the congregation will assume that you get it right because they won't know any better. And remember that anyway, the English ways of saying them have got nothing really to do with the Hebrew ways of saying them, so don't worry about it. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they'd eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazirite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. Why on earth would that be one of somebody's favorite uh, stories in the Bible? hmm God hears our pleas yep yeah. It's a story of hope also it's a story of, of bargaining, with God. bargaining with God yeah the uh the vows as you have discovered can get you into trouble uh, but um <laughs> this one seemed to be okay. There's a story about stupid men. That's one of why I like it. I mean, you know, Elkanah is stupid. So, I, don't I mean more, to you, more, mean more to you than ten sons? No. <laughs> uh, and Eli, you drunk? <laughs> you know, he, he didn't listen to pastoral counseling classes in seminary, did he? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. And other other women, um, and running into uh, the New Testament with Elizabeth and Mary. And the 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 way the ending works, um, it's it's. I find it it's complicated to try and talk uh, about the. Altersmith's uh, understanding of prayer because it's an um, understanding of answers to prayer because it, it, it's, um, it, it kind of sees answers to prayer coming in two stages. There's the answer to prayer that says, yes, I've heard your prayer and I'm going to do it. And then, the, then there's the answer to prayer that's the, in which it actually happens. Uh, and you can see the, the two stages of answer to prayer often reflected in the Psalms but superbly reflected in this story. Uh, where um, Hannah knows her prayer has been answered. Um, and, uh, but she, and she knows that before they've actually made love and she's conceived or anything. But, but her face has already gone bright and shining because she knows that the Lord has answered the prayer, even though she's no more evidence that she's ever going to have a baby than she'd got before. Uh, and, and I think that uh, picture of the way answers to prayer uh, work out um, and of the um, the faith challenge that the stage one answer already brings when you, if you if you're going to praise God for answering your prayer before you've seen um, the uh, actual event, um, I love that bit of the story.
1: Mhm.
2: I think as we see through the rest of the first saying, there's a lot of stories of unfaithfulness to God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and it doesn't take like, someone from every generation to have to plead with God and change his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, so it's a story of actual faith this yeah. matter. Yeah. I appreciate that it's a woman who's faithful. And that speaks contextually,
1: and a book is dominated by men. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. like, yeah. like mm-hmm. here's this strong woman character mm-hmm. who has been faithful
0: for yeah. all. Yeah. And, and when it also, when you're reading um, Judges and 1 Samuel, uh, one after the other, uh, I mean, there's, there's horrible stories about. Uh, about women, and generally, uh, in Judges. And uh, not much better stories you're going to read in 1 Samuel. Uh, and so this story shines out when you read the, when, you, when you read them in the, or the way in which they come in the form of prophets, where Ruth doesn't come in between. I mean, when you read them in the English order, Ruth adds to that effect. Um, but, but when you read it as the continuous story that it was written as, going straight from Judges into 1 Samuel, then this little story about ordinary people um, an ordinary woman, uh, an ordinary family, uh, stands out in the context of all the, the grimness of much of what you read on either side. Here. Uh, uh, no, I, I don't see why it shouldn't be factual. Why shouldn't it be factual? You're just wondering. You think that because because I think that I think that everything is fictional. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I don't see any reason uh, not to. Uh, I don't see any reason to think it's not factual. Um, no. Uh, I imagine Hannah singing this.
1: As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship you. You're my friend and you are my brother even though you are a king. I love you more than any other so much more than anything. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you.
0: Gracious God, some of us are probably in a position where we need to and have been crying out to you the way that Hannah was. And we say to you that our soul longs after you, um, that we long for you to reach out to us, and we bring our needs to you uh, in the way that she did, in the way that we can, and we thank you. We pray for people to minister to us the way that Eli eventually managed to. We pray for you to respond to us as we reach out to you. And we pray that as we study the scriptures together, we may discern some more of the way in which you de- do deal with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so, did you all manage to post? I Some people had troubles and I sorted them out. If you had troubles, then email me uh, or email one of the TAs and we'll try and help to make sure it works. Um, one tiny thing, uh, the... Where it says two hundred words of post of of comments, it means two hundred words for the whole evening. Um, so uh, if you do more, that's okay. But that's the um, you, you don't need to do more than two hundred words of comment on, on on everybody else in your group's postings uh, for that for that whole evening. Um, I'm going to start uh, this evening by uh, talking looking some more at the question of how, as I put on the um, schedule for tonight. Um, how did, how Israel came to be Israel in the land, um, and I will I think start by uh, showing you some bits of video and then talking about it a bit. Uh, I'm going to show you two bits um, of this video: uh, biblical archaeology from the from the ground down. Um, And the reason why it's called that is that when you do archaeology, um, you you characteristically uh, are starting on a hill that maybe originally was a natural hill, but is a natural hill that's been um, augmented by the fact that somebody built uh, a settlement on this hill, and then it got destroyed one way or another, conquered or burnt accidentally or something, uh, and so they they then... uh, treated the rubble um, as the foundations for the next city and built the next city on that. And then that that happened, and it happened again, it happened again, and it happened up to 18 times. Uh, And so uh, doing archaeology is commonly uh, excavating down into the layers uh, of a cake uh, in order to, uh, and and what you're then discovering is the reverse order of history um, of this tell, um, as such a hill is called. If you're in somewhere uh, like Babylon, then there are, mag- there are magnificent buildings to, to excavate. Uh, there's virtually nothing like that in Israel. Um, there's nothing like the, um, the sphinxes in Egypt uh, or the uh, great buildings of Babylon. Uh, what you've got is the remains of settlements, which in its own way can be at least as interesting. Uh, now uh, let's have a look at page thirty-three, where it says starting from Jericho and Ai. Uh, and more or less, I'll uh, I'll read this. Um, some students complain when I read things. Other people say uh, and they say, oh, don't give us the notes because it puts us off. Don't give us the script because it puts us off. And other people say, oh, it's really good when we've got the script as well as. So if you don't like it, tough. The guy next to you thinks it's okay. (laughs) The first two cities whose conquest Joshua narrates are Jericho and Ai. We're inclined to assume that we should read these stories uh, in the way that we read the newspaper as accounts of things that happened as they say. But archaeological evidence suggests that these two cities about which Joshua says most, these are the two cities about which the opening chapters of the book of Joshua make most fuss, were not occupied in Joshua's day. As one of the guys just said, uh, Jericho hadn't been occupied for a century before Joshua's time, and AI hadn't been occupied for more or less a millennium before um, Joshua's time. So how do we cope with that? The conservative answer is to say that we should reinterpret the geography, or the site, or the time frame. Uh, And one of the guys in the video referred to that. So the Illustrated Bible Dictionary approaches the problem as follows. It accepts that Joshua must be dated about 1220. It grants that the impressive walls that were once thought to be the ones destroyed by Joshua, date from 2300, the ones that Garstang uh, thought were the ones that Joshua had knocked about a bit. uh, that, That was a thousand years before Joshua's day. Jericho was destroyed by the Egyptians about 1600 and later occupied again between 1400 and 1325. But there's virtually no evidence of occupation in Joshua's day. So the Illustrated Bible Dictionary suggests that it is possible that in Joshua's day there was a small town on the east part of the mound, later wholly eroded away. The fact that the city was unoccupied for 400 years after Joshua's day would make such erosion entirely possible. It seems highly likely that these eroded remains are now buried under the road and fields. It remains highly doubtful whether excavation there would find much now. Couple of problems about that. First, it seems to involve accepting the findings of archaeology when they suit us, but rejecting them when they don't. And secondly, note that on this theory, the Jericho that was destroyed by Joshua would fit into the (laughs) garth. Instead of assuming that our approach to interpreting the stories as like newspaper reports is right, and that the standard interpretation of the archaeological evidence is right, the standard interpretation of the archaeological evidence is wrong, oh, let's cross that out. Uh, let's try making the opposite uh, assumption. We could infer that Joshua is partly historical parable rather than direct fact. How did you put it when you asked me the question about Hannah? A story that's true but not factual. Is that Yes, Okay. Yes, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm quite I just couldn't remember what the phrase, yeah, um, yeah. Um, if it's a historical parable, then that might fit with the fact that it's such a funny story, um, and that it's a story that seems to be more like an account of a religious procession uh, than uh, of a piece of history. So the question then becomes not why would God tell the Israelites to kill the Canaanites, But why would God inspire Israel to tell a story about killing the Canaanites when they didn't? The usual answer uh, is that the stories reflect some centuries' experience of letting themselves be led astray by Canaanite religion. Um, The Israelites now realize that it's a shame they didn't annihilate the Canaanites. To say that Jericho is a parable is not to say that Israel never conquered cities or killed people. The destruction of Hatzor, where a lot of that um, interviewing took place, uh, up by Lake Galilee, is archaeologically verified and seems best attributed to Israel. It was actually a greater miracle than the fall of Jericho, as I said, I think, on Monday. But it was a defensive, not an offensive act, which involved standing up to people with superior weaponry and God's explicit command related only to the destruction of their weapons. Further, if we want to know what a story about the straightforward conquest of a Canaanite city looks like, the story of the conquest of Hatsor tells us. The story of that bigger miracle is told in a straightforward way. God enabled Israel, bigger than Jericho, God enabled Israel to win a stupendous victory. Joshua 6 doesn't read like a matter of fact conquest story. It's an account of a religious procession. It seems likely to me that the stories are parabolic concrete expressions of the kind of facts we have noted in connection with the theology and ethics of Joshua. They declare that God gave Israel the land in extraordinary fashion. Israel didn't take it for itself. And they portray the danger of trespassing on what belongs to God, or the danger of profiteering out of war. Perhaps the story of Jericho and Ai developed out of these ingredients. Israelites knew God had given them the land, They celebrated that fact in a worship drama each day in the Jordan Valley where Joshua had first entered the land. The abandoned site of Jericho provided them with a way, a place of giving concrete expression to the dramatic story. There's no direct evidence for that. That's just my imagination. It's just a way of seeking to imagine how God could have inspired the text that we've actually got against the background of the facts that we've actually got. There's another bit of, the, um, of this video where uh, Ben the Israeli guy at the end, um, uh, talks about uh, having been um, accused of being orthodox, which is roughly the Israeli equivalent of being fundamentalist, um, because he reckons the Israelites did conquer Hatzor. Um, other archaeologists kind of can't believe that they could have done. Um, ben Tor is quite, is quite an open-minded guy. He's not orthodox. He's not fundamentalist. He's not Christian. Uh, um, but he's kind of trying to take the evidence seriously. And that was actually implicit in some of the things he was saying uh, in that clip about the various ways in which, the, or the various kinds of groups that might have come together to, to make the later Israel. Um, the, uh, the going is made nowadays in the scholarly world, the archaeological world and the critical world, um, by the assumption that the Israelites didn't come from outside the land at all. The Exodus is a, is a, is a fiction, um, and the Israelites were a crowd of people who separated off from the Canaanites and formed their own state and then somehow came to tell the story uh, about uh, having come in by means of the Exodus and come in with Joshua. Um, The biggest difficulty about that, I think, is that the Exodus story is so prominent in the Old Testament that um, it's a bit like the argument that says um, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection um, are more difficult to explain if the resurrection didn't happen than if it did happen. Um, the and, and the 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 um, arise, arouse, arise, the rise of the church, um, the transformation of the disciples and all that. It's a, big, a bigger miracle, and the, and the telling the story they told. It's a bigger miracle um, than uh, if um, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, uh, than if uh, than if he did. It's an argument a bit like that. The Israelites, the exodus is so important in the Old Testament. How on earth did they generate this story if has no basis to it? On the other hand, the archaeological evidence, as as Bentor and others in those clips pointed out, does indicate that there's a lot of similarity between, for instance, Israelite and Canaanite culture. Um, And the story uh, of the um, covenant making at the end of Joshua is interesting in this connection. Because the way that Joshua is talking, he's talking as if the people he's talking to never have made a commitment to Yahweh. Well, maybe they haven't. Some of them, many of them. Uh, so that it it would make sense if Israel, as it it emerges in the land, includes people who'd come from um, Egypt uh, with Moses, coming with Joshua, but also includes uh, people from the Canaanites who, as it were, have got converted, Uh, people like uh, Rahab and the Gibeonites and so on, whose story is actually told. Uh, That's the Pentateuch, I think. Uh, but, okay, here's three sentences. It says 600,000, um, which would imply two or three million, which is rather a lot, really, as there were no nations of that size around at the time. Um, but the, but, but the uh, word thousand is easy to confuse with, with the word for family. And if it meant 600 families, that becomes a plausible kind of number, I think. Now, if you, if you look over the page... Uh, to the next page, page 34, where it says models for understanding how Israel came to be Israel in Palestine. Um, I won't read down that because of time, but just talk a, little bit, a, bit, a, bit, a bit about those four models. You'll see uh, the, tra- the traditional understanding and the thing that you would have assumed uh, is that the Israelites came into the land by means of an act of conquest. <coughs> That's the impression you get from a face value reading of the general drift of Joshua. A view that was prevalent for for a while, uh, particularly in 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 Germany, was the idea more that they kind of drifted in. It was an act. It was migration or infiltration, rather than conquest or occupation. A view that came to arise in the USA in the 70s was that it was an act of liberation, uh, whereby the some of the people who were under Canaanite uh, under the control of the Canaanites and thus of the Egyptians declared themselves independent and went off and founded a new state uh, in the hills. The, the view that is the, uh, the, the trendy view now is what I've here called gradual differentiation. Um, that, that gradually people differentiated themselves from the Canaanites in order to become a different sort of people. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising if it turns out that the real truth is a combination of all of those. Uh, and the question then becomes uh, the balance between them. Um, and, and so uh, you can allow for uh, Joshua winning an amazing victory at Hatzor. That fits under number one. And you can also allow for the kind of description uh, of people coming to be converted um, that you get in uh, the Rahab and uh, story and in a way in the, Gibeon, the story of the Gibeonites' um, deceit. Uh, and the covenant-making in Joshua 24. Um, You can see how, within the story itself, there are uh, pointers towards some kind of a combination of these four models, as I've described them, uh, on on page 34. And you can also see the process that you've been reading about in Judges as part of that continuing process of Israel becoming Israel which the story hints at itself. That is, um, you've got the impression, unless you miss miss reading between the lines in the way that we were on Monday, that the Israelites have conquered the whole land in Joshua. But Judges starts off by saying, well, um, actually, they didn't conquer this bit, and they didn't conquer this bit, and they didn't conquer that bit. And by the time you've read the list of the towns and places that they conquered, you wonder which bits they really did. They almost have only occupied the empty bits um, but not uh, succeeded in conquering the bits where the Canaanites were strong. Um, so that the story in Judges is then, it's not the case that Israel totally existed and then threatened to fall apart, but, that the, but what you're reading in, the, in Judges is a continuation of the, the process that, that you've read the beginnings of in Joshua, whereby Israel um, is discovering what it means to be Israel in the land. Um, On the next page, page 35, where it says the archaeology of the judges to 1 Samuel period, um, there's an account of some of the background to that theory about settlement, which I'm not going to read now. It's based, as it says at the top, uh, on uh, William Deaver's book, What Did the Biblical Writers Know? He's the guy who was sitting in his office um, uh, being interviewed uh, on that video. He's a guy who recently retired from being a professor at the uh, Arizona State University. I've gotten precisely the right title, um, and I think that's the book. What did the biblical writers know, and where did they know it? Which he dedicates to his wives, which I think is interesting. <laughs> there must be a story behind that. Um, but I've also incorporated on that on that page some stuff from uh, the other books at the top, which. Uh, ha- expand um, on the kind of understanding of what Israel was like in this period that you could get from archaeology. Um, anybody want to ask anything or say anything about all that? Well. Okay uh... daniel is going to talk about judges
2: so let's talk about judges um... about a year ago in the summer i took a judges exegesis course and uh, with jeremy smoke i don't know if you guys have had the pleasure of taking him he's a great teacher um, but i took the judges course and i absolutely loved the book uh, i think it creates sort of this visceral reaction because of the types of stories that it has I mean, you can't help but react to them because of the violence, because of how, how wild they really are. So I just absolutely loved it, did a lot of studying in it. And since then, until now, I've talked to a lot of people about the Book of Judges. And I've had like very varied responses. On the one hand, I've talked about you know the Book of Judges, and there's this woman, which makes it interesting. She said, oh, the Book of Judges is so beautiful. <laughs> I just, I, it's so amazing. God's grace is incredible. And, you know, you begin to wonder if you're reading the same Bible. Um, but then on the other hand, I've talked to a pastor who's like, I won't touch that book with like a 10-foot pole. There's no way I would ever preach on that book. I don't know how to get around all the problems that it has within it. Because it just seems so absurd and ridiculous. It's sort of like this dark secret in like a family's past that no one wants to talk about. That's how he sort of viewed this book. And I think that both of the people sort of have it wrong. I mean, because really you can't just jump too quickly to God's mercy and grace because the book doesn't allow you to do that because of the stories that are within it. But at the same time, you can't just dismiss it on the basis that it's just too problematic. And so with that, I've been thinking a lot about how can we appropriate the book of Judges into the church, into the, into the context where we, where we are, and how can it speak to us. And so I just want to offer a few observations Maybe a few lenses through which to look at the book, and maybe help you, as you're reading it, think about, okay, maybe this can be useful in my community. Um, So yeah, the first point that I wanted to talk about, the lens that I think we can look at the book of Judges, is this whole idea of deterioration of the people of God. The beginning of the book begins with sort of two introductions, John calls them preambles, and the first introduction we do see sort of this, it's given us to, like, like, just facts, you know, the people of God, they, Israel went into the land, and they weren't able to push these people out. And it kind of goes that, into that whole thing over and over and over again. Well, in the second chapter, we're given sort of a second introduction. And it's sort of like a theological introduction in the sense that it sort of shades it. It sort of um, gives us this umbrella of how to think about it. And it says that the people really forgot, forgot God and forgot their history. And Judges 2.10, I just want to read that real quick. It says, um, And all all the generations were likewise gathered to their fathers, and then another generation arose after them, which had not experienced the deliverance of the Lord or the deeds that he had wrought for Israel. And the Israelites did what was offensive to the Lord, and they worshipped the Baalim, and they forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord. So there's this idea that because, of the, the, because Israel forgot where they had come from, forgot what God had done, that then they're going to then sort of act in this way that they're not supposed to. I mean, they're going to forsake the Lord. And so what we see through the book is the slow decay of identity, the slow decay of, of what it means to be an Israelite. And just as sort of a caveat real quick, I recognize that the book of Judges raises a lot I think, of important questions about history and sort of history of Israel. But I'm sort of taking a look at the book as a narrative whole and saying as we look at the book as it's given to us and as we read through it, what are some of the themes and motifs that come out of it that can then help us? And so the first one is this decay of the people of God. And it's sort of surrounded in in this idea of identity and fidelity. I mean, that's the question that we're hit with at the very beginning of, of the book, specifically the end of Judges 2. The end of Judges 2 says... Then the Lord became incensed against Israel, and he said, Since that nation has transgressed the covenant that I enjoined upon their fathers, and they have not obeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. For it was in order to test Israel by them to see whether or not they would faithfully walk in the ways of the Lord, as their fathers had done. So there's this question posed to us, Will Israel be faithful? But we know from Judges 2 that they won't. So the question that we ask when we're reading is not what's going to happen because it sort of tells us what's going to happen. The question is, like, more specific, what toll will this take on the people? And so as we see, we see more specific stories and how it affects individuals, how it affects certain groups because of their lack of um, sort of trust. So there's this decay of identity uh, and fidelity, and we see that in the stories of Gideon and Samson, I think most prominent, these two um, judges, as it were, that God raised up to sort of be the warriors for Israel. And Gideon, I mean, at the beginning, it's a great he's a great warrior. He does what God um, calls him to do, and, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he does end up driving out the opposing nation. But then at the end of the Gideon story, something tragic happens, and that he ends up making sort of this altar, this, this idolatrous altar that becomes a snare to his family. So it shows us that even the faithful fall. I mean, there's this clear, there's this clear sense that no one is really safe from this possible compromise that seems so in front of them. Samson's story is another one that I think highlights the uh, this decay. We all know about Samson. I mean, we have the flannel boards when we were younger, and um, the the stories of wow, I really want long hair because then maybe I can be strong type of you know things. So. We all know about Samson, but really, the question I think is raised in the Samson story is, what is an Israelite? Because if you look at the story closely, he looks an awfully lot like a Philistine. He looks like the people that he's supposed to be opposing. And that's really fascinating if you take this narrative, and as it progresses, this sort of decay of identity and fidelity, and you come to this person that really questions Who is this guy? Does he come from the people of Israel? Because he he looks a lot like this other other community. And so, as I think about that, I think that's a pertinent question that we can ask of ourselves and of our community is, where's our identity? Have we forgotten where we've come from? What do we look like as a church? Are we distinct or are we not? Have we become too much like those around us? Um, Last class, Dr. Golden Gate said that the church in California will be dead in 20 years. Because really, of the syncretism that we've sort of allowed ourselves to be involved in, we've become to look too much like the culture, that there is, in a sense, no effective church. And I think that the Book of Judges can speak to that. The narrative shows us the problem, is really forgetting maybe where we've come from. Now there's also the decay of community. As you go through the narrative of Judges, specifically at the end, you see that there's this real clear decay of Israel. They begin fighting amongst themselves. I mean, there's civil war. They start out trying to drive out the inhabitants. It, the book ends with them annihilating one of their own tribes. So we see that because of what they've, what they've forgotten, that there's this decay and slow deterioration of, of this people. Again, and there's a question I think very pertinent for us now, is what are we doing? How are we eating at ourselves? How is the church sort of being counterintuitive and just attacking one another to not have any sort of presence or force in the world? I think that's extremely prevalent and a really important point that we need to, uh, to think about. Now, another lens that we can look at, and I think this one just jumps off the page right away, specifically for female readers, this is the role of women in... Yeah, oh, yes, absolutely. Um, no, it's okay. Um, yeah, for for everyone, um, when you read the book of Judges, it really becomes obvious that there's an issue with women in the book, and it's a really problematic issue, I think. I mean, it's... It, That's why I think much of the judges' literature that you have, or literature about judges, is done by women. To sort of deal with these issues and these problems. I mean, you have women who are being kidnapped and raped. You have women who are being raped and then cut into pieces. I mean, it's a very large issue. And I think that... um, it causes us to ask, you know, why? Why, why is this such a, such a big deal? I mean, there are some women in the book of Judges that are heroes, such as Deborah and, and J.L., and, but there are the others who are oppressed, and, I mean, horrible things are done to them. I think this is a lens we can look at, at this book through, and it's something that's pertinent to us. It's because it shows this, this group that uh, is abused because a society has gone to where it has gone to. Um, Tammy Schneider, I think, says it well, and I think I put the quote on there. Mm-hmm. Um, she says in the Barat Olam commentary series, women serve to reveal the impact of Israel's actions on the nation of Israel at large. And the stories, in general, focus on particular individuals. Yet the women reveal the personal impact of such practices. The Shiloh women's tragic plight The end of Judges demonstrates how Israelite society strayed so that women were institutionally raped and the system of protection was intentionally destroyed. So in other words, a society got so bad that it ended up doing terrible, awful things to this group, to these women. And so the question I think for the church is, how is... Our sin affecting certain types of groups. How is our sin affecting specifically women? I mean, how, how, it really shows that there's a personal, sort of personal effect on sin. That it just doesn't affect the society at large, but that it really affects specific groups, specific people. And it just sort of, I mean, I think these stories in particular, especially the story of the concubine and the story of the Shiloh women, that it just punches you in the gut. You, can't, you cannot look away. Or you can and you want to. But at the same time, you just, you're faced with it and what do you do with it? And I think it shows us how bad things have really gotten. And I think it's a warning to us, to the church today. Things can get really bad, and then people really will be hurt in terrible, awful ways. Probably worse ways than we could have ever imagined. Uh, I think that's significant. Um, The last point on that section, in our teaching and preaching, Judges reminds and equips us to identify the personal ways sin dehumanizes people in the community. Judges really does help us do that. It really shows us that things will be affected by sin. That sin is a big deal. And I think we see that in the next point. um, My last point is that there's this tension between the limit of God's mercy and sort of the limitlessness of God's mercy. At the end of, at the, end of the Sansom story, you know Judges 16, when it goes into Judges 17, God's silent. There is no people crying out, and there is no rescue of God. He does come in later, but for a significant period of time. God isn't there. The cycle has sort of, in a sense, as Jeremy Smoke put it, which I thought was just a brilliant way of putting it, the wheels have fallen off the wagon. Sort of the wagon started, the cycle kept going, the wheels just kept getting closer and closer to coming off. Finally, Judges 17, the wheels have fallen off, all hell breaks loose. I think it's, it's really interesting that there really is a limit, in a sense, to, to how far God will be involved until he kind of steps back. Sin is a huge deal, and I think the book of Judges really shows us that. Um, The people get what they seem to want at the end, and then what they want turns out to be horrific and awful, to the point where, again, civil war. And then they call out to God again, Which is ironic, and there's so much irony in the book of Judges. When they come back together as a community, when they call out to God, it's to do away with one of their own tribes. I mean, that's how inverted the world in Judges has become. They call out to God to do something against one of their own. I mean, things have gotten awful. But at the same time, there still seems to be an apparent consistency to God's mercy. Because we know that the, that the end of Judges isn't the end of the story. We know that it goes into First Samuel, at least how the Hebrew Bible is, is ordered. And we see a woman who cries out to God, and God answers her cries and gives her a son. So where there is a limit, there is this tension, there is a limit to God's mercy. Things can get so bad where God will pull back. But at the same time, God is still faithful. And so I think it brings in the question, like, what is an Israelite? Is an Israelite, you know, I think it's something, we have to, the people of God are marked by what they do, but at the same time, the people of God are marked by God's fidelity to them. And I think that's, that's pretty um, pertinent for us. And it, it ask, causes us to ask the question, like, what, like, where are we at? On what, what side of that tension are we at? Are we in the side of the tension where where God is tempted to sort of let go and pull back and sort of give us what we want in the church? Or, Or are we on the side where we just need God to do something? And I think, I mean, I don't know. I think maybe different communities are in different places. I think the church at large might be in a very scary place. The more that we become like the others, quote-unquote, or the people who aren't part of God's community, then the more we won't have a presence, the more we we won't be able to, I guess, to be a light. A loss of better word. We need both of these realities in the church. We need to know that sin is a huge deal, and I think Judges helps us see that, that sin really is a big deal, and that it really causes us to do terrible things. But at the same time, I think we also need to hear sometimes that that sin and, and sort of our world and how bad it's gotten isn't the final answer, but that there is a there is a First Samuel possibility. There is a, there is the possibility that when we cry out, God might answer. And so that's the question that I think we're faced with as a church: is where are we? Are we going to cry out? Are we at that place where we're like, God, we need you, or are we at the place where we just kind of keep going in this cycle until finally the wheels fall off, and then all of a sudden the church is destroying itself. And I think that's sort of what we need to think about. So in closing, I think, again, um, the book of Judges causes us to ask, like, wh- who or what will we follow? Where is our allegiance? Uh, are we going to remember where we came from? And that's a question. How does remembering... What can we do as church communities to help us remember where we've come from? Is there something that we do that helps us remember w- what we're a part of? <coughs> and then I think we also have to ask the question of identity and fidelity. Are we faithful to God? Community, are we eating away at one another? Or are we attempting to, to have unity instead of disunity? Um, how do we treat those groups, how do we treat women specifically? I mean, the, I think the book of Judges asks, causes us to ask that question very specifically. Or other groups that might be oppressed and marginalized. How do we treat them? And then our actions toward them, how, what does that say about where we are? And I think finally, um, are we going to cry out to God? I already said that, but I think it's just a question. Are we going to cry out to God and ask him to do something? And hope that he will. My final point that I think I put on, on the um, handout, the very fine, it should have been not just a little black point, but one of those square, I don't even know what you call those things. Anyway, is the method of storytelling that Judges provides for us. Because I think that's something that's really fascinating about the book as a whole that could actually be helpful for us who preach and who talk, is that, that Judges really tells uh, the narrative well. It reminds me a lot of a Flannery O'Connor novel. In the sense where, you know, she asked, like, she's a uh, a Christian, and, and she said basically sometimes in order for people to recognize they need grace, they need to be hit over the head with it. And I think that Judges does that for us very well, and it shows us that perhaps we need to feel the, um, the boldness to do that with our churches and with our congregations, It is to say okay, you know what, I'm going to give a judges-type sermon, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to preach from judges, but you're going to be pretty real about the way things are and about where the church is and help them imagine how bad it can get because that's a reality of it might be able to get there. And so there's a method of storytelling that judges gives us that we can follow. That I mean, it, it, the narrative itself unfolds in a way where I think it brings to light all these things, and you as a preacher, as someone who teaches, can do that same thing that your sermons, that, that your um, content can just create this visceral reaction that, make people, that makes people just want to turn away. I don't know what that means, or if you use visuals or not, don't get in trouble or anything, I don't know. But um, <laughs> just, I think be, you can be honest, and you can be pretty raw. I think the book of Judges allows you to be that. And it allows you to, to go in there with confidence and say, no, look, are we going to follow God or not? Because honestly, this is what I see, this is how we're not, and this is how I see um, how bad it can get. And so I challenge you, I know you read a bit for homework, but I challenge you to read through the book of Judges and for it to not be something that you're like, oh, wow, that's really that's really pretty, uh, it's awesome um, and beautiful, uh, but that you that you do read it and you're like, oh, wow, that's... I don't know what to do with that. But that you don't dismiss it, that you think maybe this is, this, there is something here that I can actually bring to um, the people who God has put me over, who, I can, who I'm leading. Maybe there is something that, that is worth saying, that is worth teaching. And so that is sort of my um, challenge to you, and I hope that these things are helpful, these lenses are helpful and can help you read and make sense a little bit more, at least, of the book of Judges. So... Yeah, I give that to you. I, will, I don't know if you want to go into break now or if you want to keep... No, let's, uh, let's
0: see if people want to say anything
2: or ask, you about, ask, ask anything of you. Go so for it. Stand, stand
0: and, uh,
2: I'll stand right here. Are. Bridget. <laughs> There's I mean, the
1: tension that I, see, that I feel with the church you need to be a uh, very focused
2: agenda, but at the same time, and not be you know, influenced by society, but yet at the same time to be able to relate to people in society to spread the gift.
0: Right.
2: Um, it's a question that, yeah, me and my friends in our church ask all the time. I feel like there's a real, re- I mean, we're here. That's a reality. It's a given. Like, we're not anywhere else. Like, we, there, we're in the land, and there are people around us. But I still think that, that we're given um, an identity to, to uphold and to keep. And, and um, I think that those are the certain things that we need to be in dialogue about and be intentional about, or what are those certain things. And I think that the church is attempting to do that, but I don't necessarily think we do it very well. I think we sort of attack the other instead of having an open dialogue about what does that mean. I mean, I think the, um, for my church, honestly, the women in ministry uh, is a conversation that I think people are afraid to have. So that's not a conversation we're having. And I almost wonder if we're afraid to have that with churches Who are more open to that? The homosexuality issue might be another. Well, we're just open to the dialogue of what does that look like, instead of constantly firing like criticism at the other. Trying to, what does it mean to be faithful? I think that's the question that we need to be asking instead of assuming that we already are. I don't know if that. I don't know.
0: Oh, I think that's easy.
2: (laughs) He's, He's got this one.
0: If we only did that, the society outside
2: would yeah. say, "Wow!" Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah.
0: How
1: are we able to reconcile
2: what I mean? What what issues we should be, you know, quote unquote, huge course liberal on, and other ones we should be quote unquote conservative on? Like, for instance, are we going to be, you know, say, liberal about well, women in ministry, but conservative about homosexuality? And how do we pick and choose? Which ones, I mean, I know those are just kind of cliche words, so please forgive the clicheness mm-hmm. of it, but which ones do we try to be more progressive on? And which ones are we kind of like, well, you know, the Bible says this about this issue, so we really have to stick to that. Yeah. Like, ha- like, Or do we just do everything? Like, everything is just progressive. Because I find so many times it's either we're going to do everything progressive right. or we're going to do everything conservative. Mm-hmm. But is there? But I've always been trying to find a middle ground, but it's so hard because... Is. Yeah. Well, there were
0: those guys in, you remember the Bereans in Acts? Mm-hmm. No, I don't remember the Bereans in Acts. Who on earth were the Bereans? <laughs> well, there were some guys who it says in Acts, um, when Paul uh, went and preached, um, they, does anybody know the reference, where they come? Um, anyway, when Paul preached there, these guys in Berea, That's 20, 20 Thank you. <laughs> I thought it was something like seventeen. Yeah. Seventeen ten. Great. Right, thanks a lot. There you go. Yeah. Um, that, that the the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. These Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Mm. There's, there's, that, that's the key, as it were. Uh, when, whether, whether it's about women in ministry or homosexuality or whatever is the issue, the thing is not simply to knee-jerk conservative, because that's what we've always thought, and so that must, be, that must still be true. But not a knee-jerk liberal. Oh, that's the kind of. Oh, that's the that's the progressive <laughs> thing. But rather, let's go back to the scriptures and see what the scriptures say about women's ministry or homosexuality or whatever it is. Um, and uh, well, there's nothing else that, that, that can be said than, than that. And, and um, it's our, it's our job to go back to find out what the scriptures say and then to stick by that. Yeah, so some
2: sure. issues there, so
0: there
1: are so. Sure.
0: Very okay. Well, if, if there if there are two sides, then you've got to try and put two sides together. Then, 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 uh, then, that's why um, uh, I uh, I am very happy about baptizing babies. Um, some people only baptize um, people on the profession of faith. Uh, that I can see that both both parties uh, can, can 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 look at that question scripturally and say we we're both committed to scripture uh, and we uh, see this differently. So I say okay, let's not, let's live in the same church rather than divide it into two churches. to 7.50. He did well, didn't he? Back in 20 minutes.